Hey, I'm Carl from Champaign, Illinois. Hey, I'm Dan from Arkansas. I'm Joy from St. Louis. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Look, I've talked about the comedy sketch Kristen Shaw is a horse on this show before. I even went on Radio Lab one time to talk about Kristen Shaw is a horse. It is perfectly fair to say that I am a big advocate of Kristen Shaw as a horse. My guest, Kurt Brownholler, is half of that sketch. He's the guy who yells Kristen Shaw as a horse about 3,000 times while stomping his foot and clapping his hands until they're raw. So, guess what? On this show, we're going to talk about Kristen Shaw as a horse. Again, because you know what? It's important. And I guess we'll talk a little bit about Kurt's new TV show, Bunk. It's bullseye. This week, comedian Kurt Brownaller explains his improvised anti-game show where, amongst other things, comedians are challenged to verbally shame puppies. The comedy group Casper Hauser will interrupt our entertainment program to bring you a fake news broadcast. And the novelist Walter Mosley talks about being your typical black hippie sci-fi erotica mystery novelist. All that and more this week on Bullseye. Every week on Bullseye, we like to talk to some of our favorite culture critics and get some recommendations for stuff that is worth your time. This week, no different. We're joined by Nathan Rabin, the head writer of the AV Club, and Scott Tobias, the publication's film editor. Hey, Nathan. Hey, Scott. How are you guys doing? We are doing fantastic. Thanks for asking, Jesse. I guess Nathan's speaking for me. <laughs> I wasn't doing that great, but no, I'm doing fine. Thank you. I upgraded Scott's uh, to, uh, condition to absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Nathan, let's start with your recommendation for a uh, stand-up comedy CD and DVD that I like to think will be uh, absolutely fantastic, based on the live performances <laughs> by the artist, I think may well be Hannibal Burris's Animal Furnace. It's his first hour-long special uh, that he recorded for Comedy Central. We do have a clip from it. Let's take a listen. I got a jaywalking ticket in Montreal. I couldn't believe it. I've jaywalked so many times in my life. It's such an easy thing to time out. Is there a car coming? Nah, let me get across there. I've done it thousands of times. But this time, it was me and this old lady. We were jaywalking together. We weren't together like that. But if we were, so what? Mind your business. I just met y'all. So me and this old lady, we get across the street, then a Montreal cop approaches us speaking in French. French. I said, hey man, I don't talk like that. That's not how I talk. Can you talk to me how I talk? That probably wasn't the best way to start off our interaction by mocking his native language, but who cares? I take risk in life. <laughs> and he says, you were jaywalking! And I said, sorry about that. And I tried to keep going about my day because I thought that's how jaywalking was handled as a crime. With his, you were jaywalking! My bad. We're done here, right? That's it. <laughs> Hannibal's a favorite of mine. What, what do you think of this special? On the uh, DVD box, they have a quote from uh, Chris Rock 
who said that if Dave Chappelle, Stephen Wright, and Mostaf were to have a baby, it would be a hideous, ugly uh, creature, but it would sound a lot like Hannibal Burris, uh, which is, of course, hyperbolic, and you know nobody can possibly create those things. But it's not a bad uh, estimation of what makes Hannibal Burris so fascinating. Um, the Stephen Wright uh, comparison seems particularly apt, as he's sort of a bit of a, a joke writer. He's a brilliant joke writer, but he's also uh, has this very kind of big personality, and this is his second album. I think his first album was called My Name is Hannibal. Um, and that, I think, was much more kind of in, in the Stephen Wright vein. Whereas now, because this is his second album, he's been around for a while, uh, he was a writer on 30 Rock and a writer on uh, Saturday Night Live. Uh, he has a lot more to kind of talk about. He's, he's turned into more of a storyteller uh, as opposed to more of a pure joke writer, which I think is what he was uh, on his first album. Scott, let's talk a little bit about Wes Anderson's new movie, Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, it, it was just released this past week after it debuted at Cannes earlier in the month. It stars a lot of the regulars from uh, the Wes Anderson repertory company, including Bill Murray and Jason Schwartzman, plus a few new big names uh, like Ed Norton and Bruce Willis. Um, in this clip from the movie, Frances McDormand's character discovers her daughter has gone missing and uses a bullhorn to inform her husband, who is played by Bill Murray. Where is your sister? I don't know, but she bought my record player for 10 days without asking. What does that mean? Dear Lionel, I need to use your record player. I will give it back in 10 days or less. Do not tell Mom or Dad. I will replace the batteries when I return. Signed, Susie Bishop. Walt, where the hell are you? Right here. Why are you cursing it? Does it concern you that your daughter has just run away from home? That's a loaded question. So what did you think of uh, the new Wes Anderson movie, Scott? Uh, I really love it. I think it's one of his best films and it actually reminds me of the sort of it's almost like a fusion between uh rushmore and the royal tenenbaums which are my two other favorite films of his um it, it kind of splits the difference between the two it's uh, you know from from rushmore it's sort of about uh the infatuation of young love but uh like the royal tenenbaums it also has this element of uh, you know, so the the disappointments and disillusionment and loneliness that comes with adulthood and experience. It's just it's just a beautiful, perfectly judged uh, film. I think I think and very very Wes Anderson. Uh, there are, there are certain filmmakers who, whose films are just kind of variations on maybe the same thing. I mean, but 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 I think if you really look closely at them, uh, the, there are there are meaningful distinctions. You know, I mean, I don't think Moonrise Kingdom is not a movie that's going to win. Wes Anderson new fans, uh, but I think pe- people who are receptive to what he already does are, uh, you know, should be really pleased with it. Well, Scott Tobias from the AV Club recommends Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom. Nathan Rabin recommends Hannibal Burris's new stand-up CD and DVD, Animal Furnace. Scott, Nathan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Kurt Brownoller, can get away with a lot because he just looks friendly. He's described himself as looking like an IT guy for the Nazis, but I add helpful, like a helpful IT guy for the Nazis. 
He's made his career adding a dose of madness to his corn-fed good looks. As an improviser, as a stand-up, and alongside Kristen Schaal as half of the comedy duo Kurt and Kristen. Now he's host of a new IFC game show called Bunk, in which comedians compete in challenges that are half inane and half insane. They draw pictures of robot arms, try to make up crazy lies, and answer silly trivia questions on trampolines. If they win, they benefit completely non-charitable causes. Before I score you, let's find out which non-charitable causes each of you are playing for today. Kamel? I just got an awesome new camera, uh, and I want to get Photoshop, but I don't want to pay for it. So today I'm playing to get help to illegally download Photoshop. (laughs) Excellent. And we have Danny, our resident bunk computer nerd, who's agreed to illegally BitTorrent Photoshop to your computer if you win today. Kurt, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Oh, it's a it's a pleasure. Uh, nice to have an excuse. The show is absolutely hilarious. Thank you. Um, I feel so helpful. I feel so helpful. I can get away with anything now if I just smile at you. <laughs> <laughs> I could just be stealing things around the office. Well, I, I once saw you do a bit. I mean, look, bit in this case is probably a stretch. Um, but this was at Sketchfest NYC in New York. Uh, you did a bit that was a, if I was going to encapsulate it in just a few words, it was a doing whippets contest. Oh my God. You saw that show. Yes, I did. That was a long time ago. <laughs> it was. <laughs> I think you lost a lot of brain cells in that 10 minutes. That was, yeah. Cause that was during, it was like the midnight show where it was supposed to be the craptacular, I think it was called. Yeah. I think it was the do the craziest thing you can think of. And I think we got like 50 cans of whipped cream. <laughs> And Jane Borden and I had a whipped cream off while two men fought each other with belts. Is that correct? That sounds about right. Yeah, I think two audience members fought each other while we just tried to do as many whippets. And I immediately it was like, yay. I, I remember starting to yell. I don't remember what I yelled about. And then I walked <laughs> off stage and promptly vomited. <laughs> I had forgotten about that. Wow, thank you for that memory. You you improvised for a long time before you did other stuff. Yes. There's something really thrilling about improvising. Yeah. I mean, I remember I had never had a passion in my life. I was always a person who was kind of good at a variety of things, but not great at anything and not passionate about anything. And the first time I did, the very first scene I did... When I walked off stage and something clicked in my brain. I was like, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. Like it was just easy, easily, easy made decision. I don't improvise that much anymore, surprisingly, just because I'm so busy doing stand up that it doesn't leave any time. Uh, but yeah, I still, I still value it. Describe to me how it feels when you're uh, in a scene that's working. When you're in a scene that's working, it kind of feels like you, you can do no wrong. No matter what you do, it's going to work. It's, uh, Sometimes you won't have a memory of it afterwards. You kind of go into a state of where all the answers are right there at your fingertips because you kind of realize that there are no answers to anything. It's just a reaction. 
And uh, it's really a, it's it's what I would you know what I think people describe as a peak experience where the the challenge of the task and the ability that you have kind of match up perfectly, so you kind of feel in the in the flow of things. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Kurt Brownaller, is a comedian and improviser who regularly performs in New York and around the country, often with his collaborator Kristen Shaw. Bunk, his new improv game show, starts airing Friday, June 8th on IFC. I was really surprised when I learned that you started performing with Kristen Shaw um, almost happenstantially. Yeah, we had we had both seen each other perform on stage, but we had never had a conversation. And I wanted to start a variety show, and I went and you know asked the artistic director of the People's Improv Theater at the time, you know, hey, I want to start a variety show. And he said, you know, Kristen Shaw just asked me the exact same thing. And I knew I knew that she was backstage. And so I just literally walked out of the office and walked backstage and asked her, hey, you want to do a variety show together? She was like, sure. And we had never hung out even. We'd never – we'd had our conversation maybe for like a minute long. But I guess we just had something in our minds about it, about the other person that this person's going to work out. And well, it th- turned out it did. I think one of the things that Kristen Shaw, who – folks might know from Flight of the Concords or from many other things. Um, recently, the Muppet movie. 30 Rock. Things. 30 Rock. Yeah, she's a regular on 30 Rock now. Um, is that uh, because of her uh, sweet girlish voice and giant eyes, she can do anything. She really can. Um, and then you think it's cute. She almost had a, she had a bit for a while where she would just read the phone book. <laughs> And it worked. It totally worked. You guys can also push towards something that's like intense or brutal um, without without rep- relatively with relatively few repercussions from the audience because of your sweet smiles. Yeah, right. We both have sweet smiles. I remember when we first started off, we used to talk about it as adorable and be like, "Well, if it's just adorable enough, then this horrible thing will work." <laughs> Can you can you give me an example of something that you were that you were almost surprised worked given its level of darkness, level of darkness, that's or or just level of intensity? Of intensity. Or... I mean, honestly, it, it's it it we've I've spoken about it a lot, but I I would say Kristen Shaw is a horse, which is a, a, a sketch we've done a lot. Oh, you won't find any dissent from me in in talking about Kristen Shaw as a horse on okay. this program. Okay, this will be time. This will be time number three that we've talked about Kristen Shaw as a horse <laughs> on Bullseye, and no number would be too high when it comes to Kristen Shaw as a horse. It's about as good as it gets, as far as I'm concerned. Kristen Shaw as a horse. Oh, thank you. Describe Kristen Shaw as a horse a little bit, and then we'll play some of it. Uh, uh, Kristen Shaw as a horse is just a. Uh, we explain that it's a sketch that we wrote for our very first television show in the '70s, which was a children's television show, and uh, and we just say we're gonna just you know do the first sketch we ever wrote, and then I just begin singing this song. Oh, The majority of words are Kristen Shaw is a horse. There's some other words, but for the most part, it's just that. And Kristen just starts dancing erratically. And um, it just repeats over and over and over and over again. I continue to get more angry that, uh, that I have to do it. And Kristen continues to not know when it's going to end, so she becomes pained as well, until at the end I'm just screaming at the audience with vitriol, and at the end I think I I, I give up on words altogether. 
it's essentially like torture porn <laughs> as comedy. <laughs> I love it being described as torture porn for as comedy. <laughs> right. I mean, the two of you are just are just cranking and cranking and cranking each other to the point of physical terror. It's exhaust. It's exhaustion. I remember once in Australia we did it. The longest we've ever done it was in Australia, and it was afterwards. It, I mean, just in in the month that we were in Australia, we both lost like fifteen pounds <laughs> just from doing a bit that maybe lasts three minutes. <laughs> you know, on a good night it's three. On a really good night it's four. When you do something like that at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in New York, um, you're doing it for an audience that is there to see something that they've never seen before. Right. That came because, you know, half of them came because they're maybe even three quarters of them came because they're fans of yours. And um, the other quarter of them just heard that they can see something crazy if they go to the Upright Citizens Brigade. Theater. Right. So they're all pretty much on board they're, for something crazy happening. They're super on board. What happens when you take something as crazy as Kristen Shaw as a horse and you do it for a group of people from another country at a regular comedy? Like the, the Melbourne Comedy Festival, for example. I mean, that's an international comedy festival that hosts normal comedians, middle-of-the-road comedians, and alternative, all kinds of comedians from all over the world. But, you know... Generally, a comedian from another country, they do their most medium act yeah. because it's hard to translate. Exactly. And it was, and that was really the first time that we ever really tested it outside of you know, these weird small rooms in New York City. And the very first time, it was our third day, maybe our second day in Australia. We were still uh, jet lagged and we were doing this big gala which was broadcast to all of Australia. It was in a soccer stadium. 6,000 people were there, and we were given three minutes. And I don't think we would – if we were given more time, I don't think we would have chosen to do Kristen Charles a horse. But it simply was the fact that that's our only three-minute long bit. All of our other bits are eight eight or ten minutes long. And so like this is the – this is simply the only thing we can do. And uh, we were just like, who knows? And we didn't expect it to be this big. When we pulled into a soccer stadium, we're like, this is a soccer stadium. We're going to do this really weird bit for people in a soccer stadium? And I remember finishing it and walking off stage. It was so big, I couldn't even tell what the audience was doing. I couldn't see them. I couldn't hear them. Nothing. And I remember walking off my leg, like almost giving out as I walked down the stairs. And then coming downstairs and everyone... (laughs) All the performers were watching, just like like applauded us as we walked in, <laughs> and and I was like, "This is," and it was the first time we were like, "Oh, maybe this is this this is a good sketch." <laughs> we just did. I mean, literally, we just did it because it was the only three minute thing we had. But I, in my in my mind, number one, the the performers are giving you kind of a yeah. Like from, I don't know, bang the drum slowly or something, like some very emotional film slow clap. But number two, I mean, I'm not 100% certain they were applauding that the sketch was good. Exactly. They were just stunned that you had chosen to perform that in front of that many people. They, I mean, because everyone really does do their tight, tight three words, set up punchline, set up punchline, set up punchline. And we just didn't have anything like that. <laughs> if we did, we would have done it. You know? 
Look at her dance like a look at her go like a look at her dance like a horse. Oh, Chris St. John is a horse. Chris St. John is a horse. After a break, I'll talk to Kurt Brownaller about Bunk, the game show where, among other things, contestants verbally shame adorable puppies and play for decidedly uncharitable causes. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Hey, this episode of Bullseye with me, Jesse Thorne, is supported by IFC. Always on, slightly off. And their show, Comedy Bang Bang, starring our friend Scott Ackerman and the brilliant Reggie Watts. You can find more information about the show online at ifc.com. It starts June 8th at 10, 9 central, with special guest Amy Poehler. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Kurt Brownoller, is the host of Bunk on IFC. His show is, well, it's a comedy game show in which three comedians compete in challenges that are nonsensical, absurd, and completely insane. Eugene, what's your cause? Well, I'm pretty famous, Kurt. But I'm not a household name. I want to be like Bono or Romney. So I'm playing to have my own fragrance, which I think will bring me there. That is a great cause, Eugene. And we've got a scent chemist standing by who is prepared to make you your own fragrance if you win. Where did the idea come for you to be the host of a game show? <laughs> that was, well, the, uh, the idea was created by um, Eric Bryant and Ethan T. Berlin, who I know in, from New York City. And uh, they had asked me to host it. And uh, it, we had developed it because essentially Ethan and Eric, you know, dump, well, to go further back, Ethan and I were writing on a, a game show for MTV and Ethan was continually frustrated that all of the funny ideas that we would come up with would always get shot down. And Bunk was kind of his idea of saying, well, what if the, the actual funny ideas for the games got through instead of the ones that were boring, which is, you know, uh, you know why not? And so he and Eric, his good friend from, you know, from growing up, uh, put their own money together and, and decided to shoot a uh, spec pilot. And they asked me to host it, and I don't know why they asked me. You know, that's not something I've never, I've never asked them about. Um, but we did a whole bunch of, you know, prepping for it, and we did a bunch of run-throughs. I'm sure if I was bad at it at a certain point, I would have been replaced. <laughs> they almost asked me kind of like, well, he seems like he would be good, and then it turns out that, you know, it worked out well. Were you a game show fan? Um, was I a game show fan? No, I don't think I was a particular game show fan. What I really do like, though, is I think the structure of game show is ripe for parody. There's so many things that we just assume are things that happen that we've kind of taken in the vernacular of game shows, I think is a very funny one inherently. And so to play with that, I was kind of super excited to do. There's something nice about a game show, and I don't watch a lot of game shows, but sometimes, I don't know, uh, uh, there's one of the airlines that I fly sometimes has, you know, TV in the back of the seat that gets the game show channel. Yeah. 
and I'll watch match game, old match games from the 70s. And it's a really funny show. And the thing that I like the most about it is you realize that just having a game is so automatically compelling, even if it's completely inconsequential, because our brains just want patterns and stories so badly Mm -hmm. that it doesn't matter how little any of it matters. Yeah. And then you can just, everyone can be drunk and everyone's just saying nonsense to each other, <laughs> like, which is basically what it's like on the, on the, on that seventies match game. You yeah. know, everyone is just going nuts. Everyone is just making the stupidest jokes, just really, really, <laughs> really stupid jokes. And it amuses me every time. Yeah. It is fascinating. It, it, it's, it's a, a desire for us to have. Uh, a beginning, middle, and an end, and a clear winner at the end. And that's just like this basic – you can do kind of anything within that structure. Once people are engaged, they think something's at stake. Even if there's nothing at stake, they imagine something's at stake. And then all of a sudden, they're invested in this narrative that's completely fabricated. There's also a moment in which you in which you heighten the stakes, literally, <laughs> and then announce, well, the stakes have been heightened. <laughs> That's actually one of my favorite moments. I think I, I mean I think for a majority of the episodes I just look dead to camera and say, Well that certainly raises the stakes. <laughs> and then they and then we started changing it uh, so I wasn't saying the same thing each time. It's time now for Double Bong where we heighten the stakes by putting the causes that our contestants are playing for into peril. Gabe, tell us about tonight's peril. But I really – I would be totally fine if I said every episode directly to camera. Well, that certainly raises the stakes because it is such a fabricated idea that somehow in the second round, the stakes are raised for no reason. It's so, so artificial. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Kurt Brownoller, is a stand-up comedian, and he is also the host of IFC's new comedy game show, Bunk, in which three comedians compete in a series of challenges – that are, I don't know, to summarize, completely insane. You also have live animals on the program? We do. We wanted to have a lot more. <laughs> we, wanted, I, we wanted to have so many more animals. There was, there was one idea that we would just choose people. You know, the, the first round of like who gets to hit the button first was always kind of like up for like how do, how do we do that. And at a certain point, I thought we think we were going to have just a goat <laughs> <laughs> a goat just tied to one of the podiums and whoever he looked at first that person would go first but we never got to have a, a goat so the only animals we really had were we had a, a chicken a few puppies and oh we had some babies we had real babies too ethan's baby has decided to run for mayor that means he has a whole new set of responsibilities and it may not be that great to trade lives with him anymore wow that really does raise the stakes you seem disappointingly sober on the program. There's very little <laughs> there's very little of that match game drunkenness that I've come to look forward to. Yeah, there was a there was a certain part. You remember in the family feud, the original family feud, the host would always kiss all of the female contestants no matter how young yes. and then would hold on to them in a creepy way when they <laughs> when they competed. We we did a, for the pilot and never made it to series. 
But for the pilot, I would just uh, creepily hold for the final round. I would creepily hold on to each contestant in a more aggressive sexual way <laughs> for the entirety of the of the last round, which is a speed round. You're not shy about the creepiness, though. No, you don't withhold the creepiness. I love creepiness. I think it's fun. really funny. It's such a beautiful tension. <laughs> You make everyone hold hands as they come out from behind the podium. That's just so nobody gets lost, Jesse. <laughs> to do the action rounds. You know, there's rounds that, that take place in the center of the stage rather than be... And you literally walk out holding hands like a like you were a preschool leader. Yeah, and we're at the museum. <laughs> I love that. Just to make sure, you know, what if we lost somebody on the way? It would upset the show. Did, did you do anything that uh, did you do anything on the show that lost the audience? You do have an audience in, in the in the studio. Did you do anything that just really didn't fly? Oh, that's a great question. They would always be confused as to why I don't have shoes on, and they would always ask. <laughs> they would always ask that, and I didn't. I never really had a good answer for them, honestly. You had all that time to think about it. Now I, I'm asking you why do I don't you wear shoes on the program? Because I noticed that myself. Uh, I, I mean, do you want an honest answer, or do you want me to make up a pithy answer right now? I can. Well, I'll tell you why my good friend and colleague at MaximumFun.org, John Hodgman, no longer wears shoes. It's because when Rag- Ragnarok, the apocalypse, comes, mm-hmm. uh, shoe leather will eventually wear out and will be irreplaceable. <laughs> And so the time is now to build up the calluses on your feet. <laughs> I actually like the idea of building up calluses in case I need to host in some war-torn area. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the actual reason is just because right before – because we, we shot this thing on spec. And so uh, – You couldn't afford shoes. No, I just really honestly – honestly, it was like, what's – this is really stupid – like, I just honestly never thought it would make it to television. <laughs> so I was like, this is a really stupid thing I can do if I don't have shoes on. It kind of offsets the whole idea of me as a, an authority figure in the show because I don't have any shoes on. And I really like that kind of like flip. But honestly, I never thought that I would then have to shoot 10 full episodes of television without shoes on because it makes you extra tired. Not wearing shoes makes you more tired than wearing shoes. Do your feet also get cold? Very. Yeah, very cold. I have to write when I walk off, right as soon as we finish shooting. I'm like in really comfy, warm slippers. (laughs) Well, Kurt, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to have you on the show. Thank you. Kurt Brownaller is the host of Bunk, a new comedy game show on IFC. In the interest of full disclosure, Bunk airs on IFC, which is a current underwriter of this show. But the decision to book him was completely separate from that. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You thought you were avoiding the news by listening to this entertainment program, didn't you? Well, not this time. Here's the news update as made up by the comedy group Casper Hauser. With your Casper Hauser news update, I'm Richard Chlorofenaramine. Angela Snatches is at Karate. Our top story tonight, a leather belt may have saved the life of a man in Stevens Township. The man was able to loop the belt around his neck to increase his own sexual arousal, and experts say it worked. He's a lot happier. 
We don't know if he was suicidal before, says Reverend Dr. Dan Peters, but he's definitely not now. And a Westview woman claims to be 128 years old today. And if Mrs. Gertrude Byerman's claim proves to be true, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, she will officially be the oldest living person. And how did she celebrate her birthday? The usual way, with cake and a special birthday call from her mom. And bird watchers at the Glen Willow Marsh were horrified Saturday that they didn't see the bird that they came to see, the rare banded towie, and that they crashed through the ceiling of a hidden chamber room of an ancient craft buried in the marsh. The mummified crew were, quote, giant and not human, and to top it off, the crew reanimated and probed the startled bird watchers, who certainly got more than they bargained for. There was a silver lining, however, says one of the watchers, at least they turned us all into real birds. And an image of Yoda, mistakenly broadcast by local TV stations during a segment on wanted fugitive Richard Lee Parker, caused a stir when thousands of local residents flooded phone lines trying to turn in their grandma. And could a sea lion, trapped in a VW van with a Rubik's Cube and 12 grams of methamphetamine, actually solve the martingale paradox? Not so far, says area high schooler Carl Trey Marlowe, but, quote, he's only been in there since first period. And raccoons have eaten all the children's books at Mainville Public Library. The creatures which ate hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of damage entered through a storm tube. Why did they do it? Not because they were angry, says biologist Carl Phelan. Raccoons can't feel anger, he says. The only emotion that they can feel is, quote, being complete f***ing children's book-eating assholes. And finally, the list of most prestigious careers in this country has changed remarkably in the last hundred years, mirroring the profound cultural changes we have undergone. In 1900, while doctor and lawyer still made the list, the most prestigious career was one-man band. And in 1800, master of bananas. With your Casper Hauser News Update, I'm Richard Chlorfenaramine. Good night. Casper Hauser are based in San Francisco. Their books include Weddings of the Times and Obama's Black Bear. You can find them online at casperhauser.com and find their sketches in audio form in our podcast, the Casper Hauser Comedy Podcast at MaximumFun.org or free in iTunes. After a break, I'll talk to the author Walter Mosley. He started writing in his mid-30s, and his first published book was the best-selling, big-screen-adapted Devil in a Blue Dress. Since then, he's written 30-plus books, from mysteries to science fiction, and even something he calls a, and I'm not making this up, sexistential novel. It's Bullseye, from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Hey, gang, MaxFunCon East is already half full. If you want to come join us and our friends at WNYC in the Poconos for a weekend of fun and adventure. Yes, that's right. I said adventure. It's not true, but I said it. Then go to MaxFunCon.com to get your tickets now before they're all gone. MaxFunCon.com. Look, I'm not going to tell you who we have booked, but I will say that we have one person booked, a genuine legend who is... The single Max FunCon guest about whom I am most excited ever. Max FunCon East is October 26th through 28th in the Poconos. This episode of Bullseye is supported by listeners like you and by IFC, presenting Comedy Bang Bang Friday nights at 10, 9 central with our friend Scott Ackerman and the very funny 
Mr. Reggie Watts. It looks like a talk show, but wait, it's not one. It's something else. Uh, first guest this week, Amy Poehler. More information at IFC.com. You can find our awesome new Bullseye logo on T-shirts in three colors at MaxFunStore.com. That's MaxFunStore.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Walter Mosley, is the author of nearly 40 books in his 20-some-odd-year career. His first published book was the best-selling, big-screen-adapted Devil in a Blue Dress, which established Mosley's popular protagonist, Easy Rollins. Mosley writes detective fiction and crime fiction, but also science fiction, nonfiction, and literary fiction. He's written a play and something he calls a sexistential novel. More recently, Mosley's writing has focused on a new protagonist, the ex-boxer turned private eye, Leonid McGill. We spoke in 2010. Walter Mosley, welcome to Bullseye. Great to be here. Um, we're here in Los Angeles where we record the show, and um, I, I guess I didn't know that you are uh, originally from Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. Born and raised. My, my, dad, um, my dad spent his uh, teenage years in Glendale. He's uh, maybe five years older than you are. And um, when he comes down here, his eyes are always like, you know, saucers because he can't believe the way that the place has transformed mm-hmm. in that yeah. 40 years. In a way that, like, I'm from San Francisco, and I think maybe, you know, different people will be living in San Francisco 30 years from now, but it'll look largely the same. Yeah. Well, Los Angeles has grown in population 100,000 people a year every year since 1945. And that's a lot of hundreds of thousands of people. That's a lot of hundreds of thousands of people. It's millions and millions of people. It's big. What was the what was the Los Angeles that you uh, grew up in? You 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 sort of had you sort of had a, a pre adolescence in um, uh, in South LA and then moved a- around adolescence. Am I rem- remembering that right? Uh, well, I, I lived in Los Angeles until I was uh, eighteen or nineteen, and then left. So you know, I was born and uh, raised till the age of twelve in Watts, and then moved over to Westish Los Angeles, Fairfax and Pico. And, uh, you know, and here I, here, there I was, you know, I lived here till 1973, I think. And then I was gone. I, I read somewhere, I read somewhere a claim that you had had a, uh, Bay Area and Santa Cruz period. Well, you know, I would, you know, I'm from Los Angeles. So I go up to Santa Cruz all the time. I go up to uh, San Francisco and Oakland and, uh, Berkeley all the time. I mean, I'm, I feel very connected at the end of this, uh, book tour that I'm on, I'm going to spend five days in San Francisco. I, um, I, I went to college in Santa Cruz. Uh-huh. UC Santa Cruz huh? at UC Santa Cruz, and I'm 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 counting up I'm I'm counting up doing the math in my head. I would imagine that the time that you spent in Santa Cruz was uh, really at just um, you know hippie cultural revolution central time. Yeah. How, how did you How did you identify yourself uh, culturally in that period when all these all these categories were kind of exploding outward? you know, in this in this big sort of cultural shift. You know, it's so interesting in America. In America, you are defined culturally. You don't really define yourself culturally. You know, I, I was a guy, you know. I was living my life and uh, happy to be living my life. I was you know, certainly black, certainly Jewish, certainly, you know, a hippie, certainly young. You know, I mean, there was all these things that I was. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't under I don't feel that they were like overriding definitions except externally. You know, internally, I was Walter. 
Did you have an idea of something that you wanted to do with your life uh, besides uh, I still don't. that sort of exploration? I still don't. I mean, the idea of doing something with your life. I, one of the things I love about being from California is, is you can think about things like that, but you don't have to. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, you live your life. You know, that's what you do. You live your life. Uh, and that's what's uh, wonderful. It's, it's what's wonderful. Um, the idea of actually doing something, you know, uh, it's always going to be as negative as it is positive. And so you're always going to be answerable for all the best things you've done. And now at the same time, you have since the, you know, mid to late 1980s uh, written so many books that I cannot imagine that your lifestyle is anything but profoundly committed to writing books. Um, so what, what was the difference between you in, you know, 1971 hitchhiking across the country, um, and getting high all the time and you in, uh, 1986 decided to write every day. I I didn't get high anymore, (laughs) but, um, I don't think there's a lot of difference. Honestly, re- really, honestly, I, I just don't think there's a lot of difference. I, I've always, you know, uh, obsessively been working at something. I, I drew, and I still draw for a long time. I get up every day and I draw for three hours. And then when I start writing, I stop drawing and I start writing for three hours. You know, it's something, you know, that you like doing. I mean, hippies, hippies weren't lazy. They did things, you know, they just, you know, the idea. But those things didn't necessarily connect to... um um to an ambition or a goal you know i like writing very much i like writing novels and i think that my novels get better and i feel you know i just just love it you know but it's like my book you know this year you write your novel you know it's just simply this year you write your novel you know uh you know it 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 isn't you know it's nothing about ambition or career or money or uh even sales or publication it's just like well you do what you like to write a novel i love writing I think it's a great thing to do, and I do it. When you started writing, was it really not tied to ambition? I'm not just talking about like absolutely not career no. ambition, but it's it's hard to it's hard to get through. Well, I had the ambition to write a finished story. I remember that very clearly. I wanted to write a story that had a first line and a last line, and when you've read the first line all the way to the last line, it made sense. That's what I wanted to be able to do, and you know. Ultimately, I did it. How did you fall into uh, the specific sort of uh, genre world of writing detective fiction? I had written a story about Easy Rollins, uh, Gone Fish, and nobody wanted to publish it because it was about two young black men in the Deep South who weren't particularly educated. Uh, There were black women in the story, but those black women uh, didn't, um, they weren't um, central characters. And and the the kind of reigning uh, theory at that time was... uh, White people don't read about black people. Black women don't like black men, and black men don't read, so who's going to publish your book? And so then I wrote about the same two characters, Mouse and Easy. I wrote a mystery, and it got published. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Walter Mosley. He's the author of Devil in a Blue Dress and close to 40 other books. Most recently, a book collecting two works of speculative fiction, The Gift of Fire and On the Head of a Pen. What did you like about um, uh, working in a world that has such uh, such established conventions, that has a sort of a 
a, a system where you're you're sort of working both with and against this kind of uh, setup that comes with what you're doing? Hmm. I never thought about it. You know, I'm, I'm, I was writing stories, and I'm writing novels, and I put them out there in the world. Uh, the other day, I sent a, a collection of stories to my uh, uh, editor, and and he said, well, you know, I don't really get it. So I said, okay, so now I'm going to publish them somewhere else. You know I mean? It, 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 it's not, you know, it, I don't, I'm not concerned with the structures because I know that the structures, you know, the structures, you know, are trying to maintain something that was, and there are other things that are becoming. Um, the work might not be good. That's true. And um, I might fail at something. That's true. But it doesn't really matter. You don't, you don't, you never succeed if you don't fail. One of the biggest differences between um, uh, your detective fiction and much detective fiction, and I know you've, you've desc- I've read you describing this new stuff as um, hard-boiled, but it's a sort of on a, on a relative scale, um, is that a lot of detective fiction is about someone who has been completely like, cut loose from the world and society and normal, uh, normal strictures and thus like, has to establish his own... Uh, idea of what's important that's usually like solving the case um somebody who kind of like you know lives in a in a sort of liminal place and um both uh Leonid McGill and Easy Rollins are both very deeply rooted in family in different ways but the <laughs> yeah. the books are about as much uh, as much about their relationship with their families as they are about you know, them out in the world mm-hmm. solving Absolutely. the mystery. Yeah. How, how, do you think, how, how do you think that came to be so important in, in these books? Well, you know, the, uh, uh, hard-boiled and noir fiction are both uh, blue-collar existentialist literature. You have existentialist heroes, people who are looking to do the right thing in the world, and trying to figure out what the right thing is in a world where it's almost yeah, almost all the rules have turned topsy turvy. Um, my characters, uh, well, the old characters, uh, the way that they made them existentialists to give them no mother, no father, no sister, no brother, no friends, no girlfriend, no wife, no children, no dog. Um, all they have is a stiff drink. They change an apartment every month, right? So, like, if they got into trouble, like, for instance, if a detective, if the policeman uh, go to a detective and said, you got to turn this guy in, uh, he says, no, I'm not going to do it. And they say, well, we'll put you in jail until you do. He says, well, I don't care. Do it. Of course he doesn't care because he has, he has no responsibilities. Uh, when you add the, the issue of, you know, family and connections and, and community connections and then say that to him, then the decision becomes much more, uh, much greater pressure. Don't get me wrong. I think that you know Hammett and Chandler and Ross McDonald, the, the the early greats, did a wonderful job creating these characters, uh, and the, and their and their eyes and their vision of the world is really extraordinary. But at the same time, uh, to do that today, you go a little easy on your characters. Well, okay, fine. So you don't have to do anything. You don't owe anybody anything. So you can do whatever you want. So so what difference does that make? You can say if you do this, but you still have, you know, children at home, a dog that hasn't been fed in 18 hours or or walked, then that's another issue. You also have, um, with both uh, Leonid McGill and um, Easy Rollins, family relationships that are, um, 
that are much more complicated than the traditional and, and not just, you know, romant, complicated romantic relationships with their wives. Although, you know, a, a big part of this book is the, um, is the protagonist sort of struggling to figure out what his relationship with his wife is. But, um, also like these really complicated relationships with kids. Um, and, and it was the same way with, it was the same way with easy Rollins. It's sort of like, uh, you know, one of the one of the key characters of this one is um, is a kid who isn't uh, the protagonist's um, natural child, mm-hmm. but who the protagonist freely admits is his favorite of his children. Right. Twill. Uh, yeah. Uh, why, uh, why do you think you like to you like to complicate that so much? To... Well, you know, I, I think that the, that that the uh, the normal family, the regular family, the accepted family doesn't exist. I think that we all have very complicated relationships uh, all through our lives. Uh, I don't think it's, I, I, you know, I don't, I think Leonid McGill's relationship to his family is not standard, but I don't, neither do I think it's unusual. Um, Easy Rollins uh, moved through times sort of in a similar way to like, uh, you know, the, the way August Wilson's plays moved through time. His mm-hmm. life kind of played out over the course of the books as, um, as set against you know these various historical periods, this um, uh, these most recent uh, two Leonid McGill books are contemporary. Yes, um, but they're also um, I think Middle Age is a really important part of yeah. Leonid McGill. Yeah, there's this part where uh, where you a character says, "When you hit your fifties, life, start, life starts coming up on you fast." Gordo Tallman says on the occasion said to me on the occasion of my 49th birthday before that time life is pretty much a straight climb wife looks up to you and the young kids are small enough and the older kids are smart enough not to weigh you down but then just when you start putting on pounds and losing your win the kids are expecting you to fulfill your promises and the wife all of a sudden sees every single one of your flaws your parents if you still got any are getting old and turning back into kids themselves for the first time you realize that the sky does have a limit you come into a rise, but when you hit the top, there's another life up ahead of you, and there you are, just about spent. Was was getting to a point like that in your own life part of why you wanted to create a protagonist who was um, at a point like that in his life? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I, Is that know, really the honest answer? Really? No, I, really I, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't – I don't – I like that um, – Part that you just read. Do you relate to that? I don't necessarily that? relate to it. No, I don't. I don't feel that. Uh, I, I I look with 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 uh, great expectation to that second phase of my life, and I know that uh, Leonid has a very negative view of it because of of the amount of work that he has to do, and he doesn't feel that he can. Um, you know, it is fiction. You know, I mean, I am. You know, I'm older than Leonid. He's fifty four. I'm fifty eight. Uh, but uh, still, uh, no, I don't. I don't feel the same way. But I, I revel in writing about it. No, what, what do you think you like about writing about it? I, well, it sounds true. It feels true to me. It feels right to me. It feels like what most Americans experience. They, ex- they experience all. You know, it's like especially that thing you know about like you know the, the whole time your wife has loved you and all of a sudden she sees all your flaws. You know, it's it's really like things. Stop working at a certain time. You know everything that you expected, everything that you thought was going to go on stops, and you have no more control over it. 
And the one thing you have to do is kind of relinquish control and just do the best you can. That's a very that's a very sort of existential crisis right well, there. Well, but there this is an existential genre, I believe. Um, I I live in when I read that the the thing that uh, the thing that struck me was fear for the day that my wife would recognize all of my flaws. <laughs> <laughs> or you could look forward to it. You know, that's the other thing. You know, the one of the interesting things about life is that you know when things change, uh, there's a potential for them to get better. And uh, that's the way I've I've always felt that uh, no matter what goes wrong, no matter what you lose, no matter what hurts you, if it doesn't kill you, there's a possibility for your life to get better. And uh, but you have to be able to to see the opportunity. Author Walter Mosley. His most recent detective novel is called All I Did Was Shoot My Man. His two recent works of speculative fiction, collected in one book, are. The Gift of Fire and on the Head of a Pin. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the Outshot. When you talk about hip-hop with someone who doesn't get it, the most difficult part to get across is usually this thing called flow. It couldn't be more central to rapping, but for folks who aren't fans, it's usually unnoticed. Defining flow is hard, but here goes. It's basically a combination of the rhythm of the MC's lyrics and the MC's style. Clever and powerful lyrics are part of what makes a great MC, and great MC's lyrics read well on the page, but on record, a rapper's voice isn't just delivering words, it's delivering a solo. It's flow that belies the false claim that rappers are poets because poets write poems and rappers, well, rappers flow. But I want to talk about one flow in particular. It's hard to say who the greatest rapper of all time is, but at this point, Jay-Z has about as strong a claim as anyone. What's so remarkable about Jay-Z's style is that he is so effortless. His voice never loses its cool as its rhythm shifts and darts, twists and turns. Jay's so relaxed that you almost forget that he's doing anything technically complex at all. The rhythmic structure of an Eminem verse is always right up front. It feels dense, planned, built one piece at a time like a toothpick model of the Empire State Building. Incredible, but far from cool. Jay-Z just seems to Open his mouth and let the words fall out. Follow the flow. Which brings me to this one song, the one I want to recommend. It's called Hovey Baby. It's probably not Jay-Z's greatest song. Almost certainly not. But as Jay follows producer Just Blaze's crazily shifting drum fills around the track, it is a clinic on flow. Sometimes mid-verse, Jay shifts his patterns, trying this meter or that one, dropping bits and pieces of pun and wordplay behind him, daring you to keep up, but never breaking a sweat. Because central to Jay-Z's flow, the revolution that he created is this effortlessness, this weightlessness. It's like Ali in the ring, dancing and taunting, flicking punches so fast they can't even be seen. The rhythm, 
the style. That's what. Hovey's home, the global phone, the world is back in order, the number one rap reporter is back. You cats overfelt yourself, you couldn't help yourself, now witness the real for real. In my absence, cats get absent-minded, now it's time to rewind and remind them why I'm in the position that I am changing the game again, the male Madonna, well after I'm gone, bail honor. History in the making, pistol PD, competition shaking without missing the beat. Chasing a hi-hat all over the track The snare is scared of the air and hair Boom! And plus I get paper, doll. Don't let me forget The watch face so blue Like it's holding his breath Can't see me skill for skill The check for check It's the bow tie flow, dog. I bring it to your neck Live and direct I will bring it to your set I've got now I don't kill, got next Rapper slash exec Cordell Stewart Your flow all y'all using his mind You're all useless you ain't a factor, who are you fooling? You all look after taking us backwards. Taking it I'm backwards. trying to progress with this rap ish. Your whole career is an accident. Who is gassing them? I can't here. touch the untouchable. Break the untouchable. That's my option. Shake the unshakable. It's holy, baby. That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Nick White is our editor. Our intern is Justin Morissette. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by the Go Team, thanks to the Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, on Twitter, at Bullseye, or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And remember... All great radio hosts have a signature sign. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Hey, it's me, Jesse, with a last-minute addition to the show. I just want to dedicate this week's episode to my late friend Kathy Kamen Goldmark who died this past week. Um, she gave me my first job in radio at West Coast Live in San Francisco and was one of the most remarkable and vibrant people that I've ever had the chance to know. And I'm so sad that she's gone. So, thank you, Kathy. P.R.I. Public Radio International.